Well, thank you, Corrine and team, for leading us in worship today and the opportunities that we have in ministry. Um, with kids ministry coming up has been exciting to hear about. And uh, we heard today that fathers don't like to stand up or be recognized. But um, as a dad, I know that there's like a lot to being a dad and a lot in that. And so I would just like to give the congregation an opportunity to thank fathers who are here today and grandfathers for uh, the role that they play. And so let's just uh, remember our... And hopefully you are thinking of, uh, of honoring your fathers or uh, grandfathers today as you are able. But on Father's Day, uh, we naturally think of our fathers and those who played that role or those who played that role in our lives. And, and some of us can think of fathers who loved us well and cared for us as best as they were able. Some of us have little or no relationship with our earthly father. And sadly, some would almost like to forget their father because of the difficulties that were brought into life because of the father's struggles. Some of you here today grieve for your father because he has passed on, or you miss them because they're far away. So Father's Day can bring up many emotions and uh, many memories. And Father's Day also gives us fathers and grandfathers an opportunity to think about our role. Fatherhood is both a blessing and a responsibility. I wasn't going to say blessing and curse. Blessing and responsibility. And it is a great joy and challenge to have children. We're amazed to see these little babies turn into little people who start walking around and who start talking. And then they grow and go into school. And then they graduate, as some of you have been through with your kids over the last weeks. And suddenly we have this young adult child in our lives. And for many of us, we have also seen our children move out and become more independent from us. And some have gotten married and have their own children. And through all of these years, fathers along with mothers attempt to navigate the journey of parenting. And one question that we face, especially if we have more than one child, is this. How will we treat our children fairly or equitably? How do we navigate their different needs without giving in to favoritism? Parents can favor when they give one child more love than another, or when they hold children who have equal rights and equal claims to things to a different standards, or they may give one child more opportunities or help compared to another child. And it seems like our kids have these built-in antennas to detect favoritism. So if they perceive that their brother or sister got more ice cream than they did, they will protest. Or if they think the brother or sister got a larger Christmas gift or a more expensive Christmas gift, they might cry out, that's not fair. 
And favoritism can happen without even thinking about it. Say a father is more aligned in interest and personality with one of their children. And the others may be quite different than the father, so the father may naturally gravitate towards that child and spend more time because it's easier to spend time with that child. And the father may fall into favoritism without even thinking about it. And maybe you've experienced this challenge as a father, grandfather, or mother, or grandmother. Or maybe you experienced favoritism growing up. Maybe you were the favorite or you weren't the favorite. And we can experience favoritism in other places as well. At work, a manager may have favorite employees. At school, a teacher may have favorite students. On a team, a coach may play their favorite players more than other players. And if we're the manager... We're, or the teacher, or the coach, or the parent, we face the challenge of trying to figure out how do we treat others fairly. Now, why should we be concerned about this? Because favoritism leads to problems. In the Bible, when a father showed favoritism, it always led to trouble. There's the account of Isaac and Rebekah, in Genesis 25, and they had twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And Genesis 25, 28 says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And if you know the story, the mother and her favorite son, Jacob, deceived the father into basically stealing the blessing reserved for the older son to give it to the younger son, which led to huge family strife, and Jacob had to leave the family and never saw his mother again. And yet he didn't even seem to learn from this because he participates in perhaps the most famous example of favoritism in the scriptures. He favors his son Joseph over 10 other brothers. In Genesis 37, verses 3 and 4, we read, Now Israel, who was also Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated Joseph and they could not speak peacefully about him or to him. And they eventually sell Joseph as a slave and fake his death to lie to their father. Now, if you know the story, God used all of that for his good purposes, but Jacob is never commended for his favoritism. So we might like favoritism if we're the favorite. We don't like it if someone else gets treated more favorably. But what about favoritism in our own hearts? Is it there? Might we automatically favor someone just because they have a pretty face or nice clothes or have similar political views or cheer for the same sports teams? Might we, might we automatically not favor someone because they have an average face, out-of-fashion clothes, different politics, maybe different skin color? Is it possible that there's favoritism in our hearts? 
And if there is, should we be concerned about it? And that's what we're going to talk about today in our next message from the letter of James. He was the Lord's brother, or more accurately, the Lord's half-brother, and he did not initially believe in Jesus, his older brother, and his mission. But we're told that Jesus, the resurrected Christ, appeared to James, and James became a believer, a follower, and then a leader in the early Jerusalem church. And he writes this letter to help Christians navigate life in the world under the Lordship of Christ. And today we're going to learn James' definition of favoritism, what God commands concerning it, and why this is important. And I pray that God, by his word and spirit today, will speak to us and empower us to begin to overcome favoritism in our hearts and the effects of favoritism on our lives. So if you have a Bible, please turn to James 2, or in the Bibles we have for you, it's on page 855 in the bottom right corner, and we'll be looking at James 2, verses 1 to 13. So James 2, verses 1 to 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the horrible name or the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what is favoritism according to James? Well, the word translated favoritism here or partiality means to receive someone according to their face or to accept or judge according to the face. So it means to make judgments and distinctions based on external considerations such as physical appearance, social status, or race. 
Someone showing favoritism would prefer to give advantage to another solely based on their external appearance. They favor someone just because of their nice face, nice clothes, or high social status. But if they don't have a nice face, if they wear older clothes, if they talk different, if they have no social status, they automatically get excluded by the person showing favoritism. So favoritism is judging based on external appearance. And what does the Lord, through James, say about such favoritism? In verse 1, he says, Brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So there's no place for externally based favoritism in the life of the Christian. It is incompatible for a Christian to practice partiality. We need to be people who look beyond the external and see the person inside. So the command is clear, show no partiality or favoritism. And then James gives an example. Imagine a church gathering where a person who is wealthy shows up and drives up in their super expensive car. They come into the church wearing the latest fashion with expensive accessories. They wear a ring that is so huge it could put a down payment on a house. This person gets invitations to high-end social parties attended by local celebrities, powerful politicians, professional sports players, and influential business owners. And when they walk into the church, the ushers take them to the best seat in the house so that they are comfortable, feel welcome, and are seen. But then another person shows up, and they can't afford new clothes. They can't afford new shoes. So they're still wearing the ones they came through last winter with. Their clothes actually look worn out. They can't afford the coolest perfume. In fact, they kind of smell a little funny. And when the ushers see this person, they instruct them to wait for appropriate seating and then conclude there's actually not room for you in there. You need to stay out in the foyer. But please, actually, don't sit down. We don't want you to dirty anything out there. Keep standing. Well, hopefully, we'd be outraged by such treatment received and treatment practiced if that was our church. We would never do that, right? Yet it seemed to be happening in the churches that James was writing to. James concludes in verse 4, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So favoritism is not just some minor little attitude problem. It involves evil. Showing preference or favoritism based on external appearance reveals evil thoughts. There's something wrong in our souls if we show preference to others solely based on what they look like or what we perceive about them. Yet, doesn't everyone do this? Doesn't favoritism show up everywhere? At school, at work, in the church sometimes, 
in families? Probably. But that doesn't make it okay for Christians to practice it. And James gives two major reasons why this should concern Christians. So why must Christ's followers not show favoritism? Reason number one is favoritism is contrary to Jesus' character and heart for people. And James appeals, remember in verse 1, to those who have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're Christ's followers. And if you look at Jesus' life, he showed no favoritism based on external appearance. He made time and space for the poor, marginalized, oppressed, and helpless. He stopped to heal lepers who likely had disfigured faces. And this attitude reflected the heart of God. Four scriptures that you might consider that talk about this. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Or 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. This is David's older brother, Eliab. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Or Acts 10, 34. Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Or Galatians 2 verse 6, God does not judge by external appearance. And back in James 2 5, we see God's heart for those who don't look good in the eyes of the world. He writes, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Or the New International Version says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world, which I think is a good translation. God has a heart for those who are poor in the eyes of the world which echoes Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so what's the connection? Why does God have a heart for those who are poor in the eyes of the world? And it might be, because when we are poor, we are much more aware of our need. We are much more aware of our lack so we're much more aware of our need for God. Commentators argue but the, by, that by the time James was written, the term poor began to mean those who were economically poor yet spiritually open. And the vast majority of people in that culture were economically poor. Vast majority, not 55, 45, 95, 5. 95% of the people were poor. And yet many had an open heart to the things of God. And Jesus wants those viewed as poor in the eyes of the world to know how much God values them. This goes for you and me. We are not celebrities. We are not powerful. We are ordinary people. Yet God has a heart for us. God does not show preference based on external appearance. 
And James makes the case that favoritism based on external appearance is contrary to Jesus' character and heart for people. Yet, apparently, this was happening. For in verse 6, he says, But you have dishonored the poor man. This kind of favoritism towards the wealthy appeared to be happening. Yet it was crazy in the sense that the wealthy were the ones who often oppressed the poor. Many poor people experienced oppression from those who had wealth. And James describes this in the second half of verse 6 and through verse 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James asks his readers to examine, why would you show favoritism to someone who mistreats you? They were acting like a display of wealth automatically earned privilege in God's kingdom. Yet this same wealthy person might take the usher who seated them to court in the following week for an unpaid debt. Or the wealthy person might regularly blaspheme the name of Christ, yet they get preferential treatment when they come to the church? Jesus did not let wealth or power blind him or dazzle him. Remember the rich young ruler who came and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, you must keep the commandments. And so he lists the commandments. And the young man says, I've kept all of those. And then Jesus says, one thing you lack, one area you're poor in, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And the young man turns away very sad because he loves his wealth more than he loves God. So notice Jesus didn't say when he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know what? I don't want to get into those like, you know, details and things like that. They're a little bit awkward to talk about. Why don't you just come join us? We could really use your support for our ministry. He did not let the wealth blind him or dazzle him. And you and I might not show preferential treatment to someone because they drive a nice car, but... What about our favorite celebrity or sports figure or politician whom we adore? It's amazing how quickly we are willing to ignore their flaws because we adore them. So we excuse them when they curse using Christ's name. We ignore their opulent lifestyle or their questionable comments because we adore them. We get blinded when we over-adore someone. And it seems that the readers of this letter allowed wealth to blind them to the realities about certain wealthy people. But James declares Christ followers must not show favoritism because reason one, it is contrary to Jesus' character and heart for people. And then reason two, why must Christ followers not show favoritism? Because it goes against God's law. You must love your neighbor as yourself. So in verse 8, 
James talks about the royal law according to Scripture. And the law could be royal because it comes from the supreme king who is God himself, or it could be royal because it's a law that seems to govern completely our relationships with other people. And that law is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It comes originally from the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18, and then Jesus quotes it when he's asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the first. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we treat people, children, equally, we are loving our neighbor as ourselves. We don't like it if we get treated unequally or unfairly. So when we refuse to show favoritism, we are loving our neighbor as ourself. But when we do practice favoritism, we sin. And look at how James lays this out very clearly and obviously in verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And then he goes to make the news worse in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. So favoritism or partiality is sin, and when we, when we do it or we think it, we transgress or break God's law. And if we break one of God's laws, we're guilty before God. Which sounds pretty depressing. I mean, who hasn't shown favoritism at least once in their life? And it can seem like James preaches, oh, we have to live perfect lives to be acceptable to God. But this is where the gospel comes in. God's holiness and justice do require payment for the breaking of his law. Yet Jesus did two things. First, he lived a perfectly law-abiding life, righteous life, never showing favoritism once. And then he offered himself on our behalf as a sacrifice in our place. So anyone who puts the trust of their life upon Jesus and what he did upon the cross can be forgiven for their favoritism and all other sins. And if you don't know Christ, you receive him by believing that he is God the Son, by confessing your sin, by declaring your loyalty to Jesus. You give your life over to him. He's your Lord, and you begin then the journey of growing in Christ-likeness and leaving favoritism behind and we begin to walk with the Lord. We learn to depend on the Lord. We ask Jesus to change our thinking by the renewal of our minds. For some of us have been taught favoritism. We grew up with it. We were taught to be prejudiced against certain people. We lived in that environment, so we have to unlearn that. Our minds need to be renewed. We ask the Spirit to transform our hearts, and then we begin to live out, verses 12 and 13, where he says, So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Meaning, yes, the law says to not show favoritism, Yet when we trust Christ, we are forgiven and live under the new law of liberty, which doesn't mean we get to ignore God's law. It means we're saved from its condemnation, 
but empowered to follow it more and more. And we grow in showing mercy towards people rather than judging them. So if I were to summarize this passage, I'd put it like this. Christ's followers must not show favoritism because it's contrary to Christ's heart for everyone, and it goes against God's law. And when we fail at this, we can receive forgiveness because of what Christ has done, but God calls us to move beyond repeating this sin to overcoming it. We don't just excuse favoritism. We need to grow in fairness. And to do that, we need to come to each person of the Trinity to receive what he has for us. We must turn to the Father for love. To the Son for forgiveness. And to the Spirit for power. If we want to overcome favoritism in our hearts and the effects of favoritism on our lives. So some of you here today might have been hurt by the favoritism against you, maybe in your family. And yet you have a heavenly father who shows no partiality, no favoritism. And he sees what you have gone through. And he doesn't discriminate in that way. He sees what you've suffered, and he invites you to become whole in him. And every parent and grandparent here needs to seek the Father's wisdom as well, because parenting presents complex challenges which children bring into our lives. Yet the Father equips us and helps us to guide them if we will come to him for wisdom. And then we come to the Son for forgiveness, to address any favoritism in our hearts. We have to trust the Son's work, that he purchased our forgiveness, and then we trust the Spirit's power to overcome it. And so as we close our time today, I want to invite you to come to the triune God with whatever he has been speaking to you about. So... Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And if, if you're someone who experienced not being the favorite, which has led to some trouble and some lingering effects in your life, will you come to our Heavenly Father? And you can express your heart to a father who does not show favoritism and does it perfectly. And if you're a parent here needing wisdom with respect to your different children, then cry out to the father for it. And if God has maybe revealed in our hearts or we knew already that we have shown favoritism somewhere, maybe at work, maybe at school, maybe on the team, maybe at home. Confess that to the Lord. And then ask for the Spirit's power 
to begin to walk forward from it. And Lord God, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, this is such a challenging command. Our hearts have been stained by sin. We have our natural preferences, agreements, attractions. And our sinful nature naturally wants to go in a certain direction where we gather around us people who are just like us. And we're put off by those who are different, maybe. And you have called us, Lord, to be like you, Christ-like. And you welcomed everyone. And you ministered and you spoke truth to everyone. So continue to grow that in us, Lord. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. And we ask for your power to grow, to be individually, as families, and as a community, a people more like you, who show fairness and equitable uh, treatment to all. Thank you for doing that for us, Lord. And we love you and pray this in your powerful name.